please open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, today uh, we bring our life-defined series to a close with this final message titled, Here I Am, Send Me. Here I Am, Send Me. Those, of course, are the words that Isaiah urgently utters to God after seeing this life-defining, life-changing vision of God. And for as great a need as it was in Isaiah's day, it is a great need in our day as well. To see a life-changing, life-defining vision, understanding of who God is. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said this, In my opinion, the great single need of the moment is that light-hearted, superficial religionists be struck down with a vision of God high and lifted up with this train filling the temple. The holy art of worship seems to have passed away like the Shekinah glory from the tabernacle. As a result, we are left to our own devices and forced to make up the lack of spontaneous worship by bringing in countless cheap and tawdry activities to hold the attention of church people. Wow, right? Like, Tozer's not beating around the bush. And, and his premise here is that the greatest need, not just of people in the world, but really the greatest need of the church today is to see God for who he really is. Because when we see God for who he really is, then we really begin to see what life is really for. And that brings us to this passage in Isaiah 6 that Marco read for us a few minutes ago, but I'd like us just to read it again with our Bibles open in front of us. Isaiah 6, follow along in your copy of God's word as I begin reading at verse 1 down to verse 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Over the years, I've uh, heard this passage preached at least a few different times, and each time it has had a profound impact on me personally, not just in uh, my understanding of the passage, but really in the way that uh, the Lord has given me grace to apply this passage to my life. And, and it's kind of inevitable that some of that is going to leak into today's message. And um, I just want us to start here with this idea as we come to Isaiah 6, that when you encounter God's glory... You engage in God's mission. When you encounter God's glory, you engage in God's mission. And so we're just going to walk through this passage verse by verse. And as we do, I want you to see this morning seven characteristics of God to observe and one call from God to obey. 
So seven characteristics of God to observe and one call from God to obey. Let's start at verse 1. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So let's stop, just pause there for a second. A little bit of context here to help us understand where we are in God's word and where we are specifically in the book of Isaiah. Uzziah was the king of Judah for 52 years. So Judah was the nation that the Lord had sent Isaiah to prophesy to because they had been putting their trust in alliances with other nations to keep them safe and secure rather than trusting in the Lord himself. Uzziah was, for the most part, a good and godly king for most of his reign who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And under his leadership, the country was at peace. Uzziah had built a strong army. Their economy was firing on all cylinders. There was a sense of stability that went across the nation. But eventually, Uzziah gets so puffed up by his own pride that one day he decides he's going to walk into the temple and burn incense on the altar. The problem with that is that a king was not allowed to do that. Only priests were allowed to go into the temple and burn incense on the altar. Uzziah is a king. He's not a priest. And so as he's going into the temple to burn incense on the altar, 80 priests, 80 priests walk in behind him. They follow him in. And in unison, they plead with Uzziah not to do this because the judgment of God will fall on him if he does. And in his anger, in his pride, Uzziah goes into the temple anyway. He burns incense on the altar. And the Bible says that immediately leprosy breaks out on his forehead and eventually he dies from it. And when Uzziah dies, all of the stability and the security of that 52-year reign is instantly gone because the king is dead. But now, in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees this vision that even though the king of Judah has died, the king of kings is still alive and he is ruling over his kingdom. Think about this. Kings and queens in our lifetime will come and go. Princes, princesses, rulers, dictators, they will all come and go. In a few weeks, here in our own country, we may or may not have the same prime minister that we have right now. A president will be in office for four years, maybe eight years. Queens have a monarchy that can last for decades, but at some point, every single one of those leaders dies. But in Isaiah 6, Isaiah has this vision and he sees that there is one king who rules and reigns over all of them and he is still very much alive and he is sitting on his throne. So notice this. Not only is he the king, but notice what Isaiah says next in verse 1. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. So this is where we see the first characteristic of God to observe. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. I just want you to see through this passage this morning who God is. I want us to have a right perspective of who God truly is. So we start here, God is sovereign. In other words, he is in full and complete control of the entire universe that he rules. Like right now, God is not frantically pacing the span of creation, trying to solve the problem of terrorism or poverty Nor is he lying awake at night, biting his fingernails, trying to figure out some of the most difficult things that we go through in our life. It's not that he doesn't care about those things. It's just that he is sitting on his throne. And the reality that God is sitting on his throne is an indication that he has complete control over everything that we see in this universe and over everything that happens within your life. Like, loved ones, our theology has to be big enough to believe that God can use our worst pain to accomplish his best purposes because he controls all of it. 
Verse 1 continues. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Here's the second characteristic of God. God is exalted. In other words, he is superior to everyone and everything else. He is exalted. One of my favorite parts of being a pastor is that I get to do weddings. I think I've shared this with you before, but um, I I love weddings because as the ceremony begins, um, I usually walk in with the groom and his groomsmen and we take our places at the front and then the music gets a little bit louder and, and the doors at the back of the worship center, at the back of the auditorium, they swing open and, and there's the bride dressed in her beautiful white dress on the arm of her father. And, and at that moment, like everyone in the room turns around to look at the bride. Like nobody's looking at the groom. No, like he could fall off the face of the earth and nobody would know any different, right? Like nobody's looking at him, everybody's looking at the bride. That is actually my favorite part of the entire ceremony. Because when everybody else is looking at her, I'm looking at him. And I'm just watching him to see what his reaction is going to be in that moment. Because when that door at the back of the room swings open and he sees his bride for the very first time, like, he's either about to cry his face off or pee his pants. Like, <laughs> like seriously, right? Like, like, it could go either way, right? Only the strong survive. But then, but then, like, like everything changes and, and the bride begins to walk down the aisle and, and the train of her dress, following in behind her, just, just follows her down the aisle and that train is a symbol of her honor. That train is a recognition of her beauty and, and all of the eyes in the room in that moment are fixed on the bride as she walks down the aisle. Now just think for a minute what it would be like for the train of God's robe to fill the temple. The the Hebrew phrase here literally means the hem of his robe filled the temple. Think about that. The hem of his robe fills the temple. Like let that just give us some perspective about how big and amazing and glorious that God truly is. And to think then that we now are the temple of God. As believers in Jesus Christ, the spirit of God lives within us. Like let that give us some perspective to think about God's honor and greatness filling every aisle in this church. And, and his greatness covering every seat and entering into every room and shadowing this pulpit and, and God's greatness and honor pervading every small group and controlling every part of every life that is represented in this room so that every square inch of all that God rules is occupied with the recognition of his fame alone. He is exalted. And the recognition of his fame goes not only to the far reaches of creation, but it's happening at the very throne room of God himself. That's what verse 2 says. Look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Characteristic number three, God is worthy. God is worthy. The name of these angels, seraphim, literally means to burn. It means fiery ones. So these angels, just think about this, these angels are literally on fire in worship of God. 
And Isaiah says that each of these angels have six wings. Two wings cover their face as an act of humility before God, that they cannot see God and live. Two wings cover their feet as an indication of their service for God. And with two wings, they flew, going about from one place to another, declaring the glory of God. Consider the magnitude of what he's saying here. Even these supernaturally powerful, superhuman creatures with such astonishing strength and might must humble themselves in worship before the one true and living God. And notice how they're praising him. Verse 3. And they called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory. So not only is God sovereign and exalted and worthy, but number four, God is holy. God is holy. These fiery angels are circling the throne of God and they're thundering the praises of God. Notice, they're thundering the praises of God to one another. Like, they're not even directly giving these praises to God himself as he sits on the throne, although that is happening, but they're actually declaring these praises to one another. To repeat this cry three times indicates the completeness and the supremacy of God's holiness. But think for a minute, what exactly does it mean for God to be holy? Because God commands us to be holy, right? First Peter chapter 1, he says, Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. So for us to be holy means that God calls us to be set apart from sin. And in that sense, that's also what it means for God to be holy, that he is set apart from sin. There is no sin in God. There is no impurity, no injustice, no deceit. There is no impure thought or act or word or motive that comes from God. Habakkuk 1, verse 13, in the Old Testament, Habakkuk says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong." Like everything that God is and everything that God does is good and right and pure. And so while that's the essence of where God's holiness begins, there has to be more to his holiness than just that. Because even these angels who are circling the throne of God and they're thundering the praises of God, even they're holy. Like they're set apart from sin. And yet there's this clear distinction that exists between God and these angels because these angels are worshiping God. So not only does God's holiness indicate that he is set apart from sin, but he is also set above his creation. That's part of what it means for God to be holy. And we need to understand that God is not just a slightly better, more powerful, recently updated version of us. It's not who God is. God is the one of whom Isaiah would later say, In Isaiah chapter 40, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. So so God is challenging his people to, to look up into the sky. Like look up into the sky and see all the stars that are in the sky and ask yourself, who made these? Like who will you compare to me? And I would challenge you, loved ones, when you go home later, later on tonight, you know, when the sun goes down at like 3.30 or it just keeps getting earlier and earlier, but whenever, like when the, when the sun goes down, it gets dark outside, the stars come out, like go outside and look up and see all the stars in the sky and ask, who made these? Who created these? Like there is none like our God. He goes on and says, <clears throat> 
He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, but by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Astronomers estimate that there are more than 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. 400 billion, with a B. And that there are 125 billion galaxies in the universe. So that the total number of stars would be estimated to be about 10 billion trillion gazillion, may as well be, right? Like total number of stars in the galaxy. And the amazing part is that not only did God create every single one of them, but he knows every single one of them by their name. And he knows that not a single one of them is missing. Like, just be amazed at God. And in the meantime, all of this creation is shouting God's fifth characteristic. Number five, God is glorious. God is glorious. Verse three, he says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Everywhere we look and with everything we see, we are met with the manifest presence of God in all that he has made. Think Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Like We sit here right now and and we're going to walk out these doors in a few minutes and we are surrounded by a creation that shouts the existence and the glory of its creator. And it never stops. It keeps going and going and going for all time, for all eternity, shouting the glory of God, which helps us see the necessity of characteristic number six. God is to be feared. God is to be feared. Verse four. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Encountering God is far more than just a quiet and peaceful reflection about God with nice music playing in the background. Like what Isaiah is describing here, this is the actual emotion of gut-wrenching fear. Because you're in a situation that terrifies you, and you don't know how you're going to get out of it. Like, think about what's happening here. The foundations shake and the house fills with smoke, all symbols of God's holiness as it relates to sin and judgment. And in verse 5, Isaiah says, I am lost. I'm lost. I'm just lost in this glorious, amazing, grand picture of who God really is. That Hebrew phrase literally means, I am destroyed. It implies being ripped apart psychologically. It's it's the thought that any sense of goodness or righteousness that you think you have that is holding your life together is instantaneously being ripped to shreds in the presence of the holiness of God. So let me ask you, is there something in your life right now that you're holding on to so tightly that you think is the glue that's holding your life together? That if you were to lose that one thing, you think that your life might fall apart. Your money, your marriage, your parenting, your family, your job, your accomplishments, your reputation? Are you depending on something other than the living God himself to hold your life together? 
Like Isaiah is experiencing this and he's describing such a deep brokenness before the holiness of God. And this really, this loved ones, is what happens when we see who we are in light of who God really is. It reveals to us that as good as our goodness may be, it will never be enough for us to stand in the presence of God. So Isaiah says in verse five, I'm a man of unclean lips. This is actually a really profound statement because Isaiah made his living with his mouth. He spoke for God himself and yet he curses himself in this moment as a man of unclean lips. He realizes that he is sinful and he realizes the predicament that all of us are in as well, that because of his sin and because of the sin of his people that they should all break under the weight of the rightful wrath and the judgment of God. He's realizing at this point that his preaching will not be enough to save him or to save his people. And his good works will not be enough to save him or to save his people. That his serving will not be enough to save him or to save his people. Only now is he seeing himself rightly before God. That it is outrageous that he is even in the presence of God at all. I just want to hit the pause button here for a second because... This is heavy. And, but at the same time, in some sense, I, I want us to feel this. I want us to feel the helplessness of Isaiah's predicament because in some sense, it's our predicament too. I want us to feel the heaviness of God's holiness upon this situation right now. then I also want us to see what God does next. Verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken, from, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Characteristic number seven. God is gracious. God is gracious. We could just follow the flow of this passage and we realize that we are right there with Isaiah. We are guilty and deserving of judgment and just when it seems like all hope is lost, God is gracious. And frankly, loved ones, it begs the question of every single one of us sitting in the room right now. How is it that sinful people like you and me can even be in the presence of a holy God who has no sin in him at all. Like, think about that. This is the question that that every single one of us in the room right now as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to wrestle this to the ground and pin it down. How is it that any of us, sinful human beings like you and me, How is it that we can even be in the presence of a holy God who has no sin in him whatsoever? And as soon as we ask that question, it should dawn on us that this is actually the entire story of the Bible. That this really is the story of redemption. And so we go back close to the beginning of the Bible, Exodus chapter 12. The people slaughter a lamb and put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their house. And the blood on the doorposts is a sign that judgment had already fallen on that house. And because of God's mercy, his judgment then would pass over them. 
The lamb that they had sacrificed was a reminder that they had been saved by the death of a spotless substitute. So we look at Exodus 12 and we see that God has graciously provided a way. God is gracious. Then we fast forward a little bit from Exodus 12 to Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. They have two goats and, and the first goat is sacrificed and its blood is sprinkled on the cover of the atonement seat. But then the priest takes the second goat and he lays his hands on the head of that second goat and confesses the sins of the people. And that was symbolic of the sins of the people being transferred to the sacrifice. And then that goat would be taken outside the camp and sent away and the goat would wander away from the people. And all of it, a big picture of how God had put the sins of the people upon a sacrifice and that sacrifice has taken away all of the sins and the sins never to come back to the people. And you look at Leviticus 16 and again, God has graciously provided a way. But then we fast forward even more and we come to Isaiah and and we look a little bit beyond our chapter in chapter 6 and we see in Isaiah 53 the picture becomes even more clear because there Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. And he says this in Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and notice carried our sorrows. Just like that second goat. All of the sins of the people placed on that sacrifice, placed on that animal, sent outside the camp, wanders far away from the people, takes the sins of the people with them, never to come back to them. And Jesus is sacrificed. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So so come back to this question with me. How is it that sinful people like you and me can even be in the presence of a holy God who has no sin at all? And the answer is that it is possible because God has made atonement for our sins through his only son, Jesus Christ. Atonement meaning to make us one with God. Jesus has become our Passover lamb. And in that atonement, he has taken the fire of judgment for us. Jesus has died in our place and for our sin. He has risen again in victory. He is coming again in glory. This is the story of our redemption. Like that's... You get back to Isaiah 6, and that's the point of the burning coal. It's a coal. It's already burned. It's not a sign that Isaiah has to pay the price for sins that he's committed. It's a sign that the fire of judgment has already burned for him. And so now, the fire that touches his lips is not to consume him. It is to cleanse him. So Isaiah sees that. Just just follow this, okay? Isaiah sees that God is sovereign, exalted, worthy, holy, glorious, to be feared, and gracious. And it seems now that there's only one call for him to obey. That brings us to verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Look in your Bible in verse 8. You see, you see what he says there? He says, here I am. How many of your Bibles have an exclamation mark at the end of those three words? Here I am. Exclamation mark. Right? So try and, try and capture the tone of what's being said here. Like Isaiah hears this conversation between the Trinity, between Father, Son, and Spirit. Whom shall we send for us? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am. 
Like, here I am. Don't miss me. Don't look past me. I see what you've done for me. Here I am. Send me. Isaiah sees God for who he really is. And then just notice what he does. Just prays. And notice the simplicity of his prayer. He just cries out, here I am, Lord. Send me. Like, God, I just see a little more clearly how worthy you are and how unworthy I am. And I see what you have done for me. And so, Lord, I will go where you send and I will do what you say. Don't miss this, loved ones. Don't miss this. The where and the when and the how that he's going to send you, that's up to the Lord who sits on the throne. Okay, he's simply looking for a heart that is willing to be sent. And what makes this even more astounding is that Isaiah had no idea what he was in store for when he prayed this prayer. Like he had no idea that he would spend the next 30 years of his life preaching to people who would never listen to him. Something to which I do not aspire, by the way. Okay? He had no idea that his message would be so poorly received that one day the king would finally catch up to him, stuff him inside of a log, and then saw him in half and his life is over. Like, how do you get to the point in your life where you can pray a prayer like this and have no idea what's going to happen to you after you pray that prayer? You get to that place when you realize that the most important part of that prayer is not about what's going to happen to you. The most important part of that prayer is that you see the glory of the God who is worthy of us doing what he says and going where he sends Listen, friends, if, if you are saved, truly saved, turned away from your sin, turned away from yourself, trusted in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of your sins and for the hope of eternal life, like if you are saved in Jesus Christ, then this is your call today. This is my call today. And here's the thing. I get it. Like, I, I get it. I understand how terrifying it can be to pray a prayer like this and have no idea what waits for you around the next corner. Like there have been moments in my life, a couple that I can think back on where have, that have been pivotal moments where I've prayed this prayer or something similar to it and just had no idea. God, I don't know where this is gonna go. I don't know where you're gonna lead. I don't know what it's gonna require of me. But God, I just see a little more clearly how worthy you are and how unworthy I am. And I'm just coming before you, God, and saying, here I am. Like, please don't look past me. Please, God, here I am. Send me. I think back to five or six years ago and there were 80 or 90 of us in our families who essentially in one form or another prayed this prayer. That together God had worked in our hearts with a supernatural love for this city to plant a church and and for many of us, it involved different levels of sacrifice and commitment. And, and since then, I, I look around and see so many of you that have come along since then. And, and you've prayed this prayer or a variation of it in one form or another. And, and you've just laid yourself before God's call in your life. And, and I think of how you're talking to people at home and at work about Jesus. I think of how you're standing up for Christ at school with your friends. I think of the street evangelism and the foster care and the adoption and the safe families opportunities. And, and I think of coming alongside of brothers and sisters within this church family who are in need. I think of the mission trips. I think of the financial sacrifices. 
Think of students giving God a year of Bible college to see what he might do and, and other students who are going to various college and university campuses across the country and, and in different places to live and to share the gospel there. Think of the moms and dads who are praying, Lord, help us to lead our family to you, whatever the cost is to us. I think of many others of you who are serving across various parts of this church all for the purpose of making disciples of Jesus Christ and for some of you, it is pushing you so far out of your comfort zone. But just thinking that on some level, all of those steps are the result of some variation of the prayer, Lord, here I am, send me. Like on some level, it's true, isn't it? Like we get, on some level, we get how terrifying it can be to pray this prayer. And yet the very reason that we pray this prayer is because we see what God has done for us in the gospel. Like our lives, think about this, our lives and our eternities have been drastically changed because this God loves us and he has done this to rescue us. I can't stress this enough. Praying this prayer is not about how ready you feel to respond to God. We were talking about this at a staff meeting earlier this week and and somebody said in our conversation that you, you can't, approach this prayer only when you feel like you're ready to respond to God because whenever we approach God like that, then living on mission becomes optional. And it's not about waiting until you arrive at a certain point in your relationship with God and then you're gonna live on mission for him. That's not what this is about. Like it's not saying to God, okay God, I'm gonna wait until I get my finances in order or I'm gonna wait until the kids grow up and I have more time or I'm gonna wait until I get through this illness and and I feel better and then I'll live on mission for you. That's not what this is about. Instead, if you are saved by the grace of God through faith in the Son of God, then your call is to live on mission for God right now. I've said it before, if you're saved, then you're sent. Now, at this point, it's almost like I can see little thought bubbles just rising up above many of your heads right now, almost like text messages to the preacher in real time, right? And, and I can just see some of these. And some of you might be sitting here, you might be thinking right now, okay, okay, preacher, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying about who God is in Isaiah 6. I hear what you're saying about here am I, send me. I hear what you're saying. If you're saved, then you're sent. I hear all that. But I don't even know where to begin. Like, I just don't even know where I should start. I hear all of what you're saying, but where do I even begin? And for all of us, whether that's you or not, for all of us, I would just take us all back to God's word in Isaiah chapter six, and we start where Isaiah did, and we just pray. Just come before the Lord and pray this astoundingly simple and yet sometimes terrifying prayer. Here I am, Lord. Send me. And the beautiful thing about this prayer is that you don't have to figure out where you're going to go or how you're going to get there before you pray it. Because where you're sent and when you're sent and how you're sent is up to the Lord who sits on the throne. See, it all comes back to this. When you encounter God's glory, you engage in God's mission. I want to put um, two practical opportunities in front of us today, and uh, maybe our worship team can come out at this point and just be ready. And just two practical opportunities. Uh, we only have time for these two things today, knowing that, uh, Lord willing, there's going to be more opportunities in the next little while as we seek the Lord 
um, opportunities for us to grow in our love for Christ and, and in our love for one another here within this church family, opportunities for us to grow in our love for our city and for the region in which we live, opportunities for us to grow in our love for the world around us and to take the gospel to the nations. Like I've had a few conversations over the past few weeks with, with some of you even in the room right now and, and just so, can I just say, so encouraged, so excited, just can't wait uh, to see what God has in store for us in the future and, and just ways for us to grow in these ways, in our love for one another, just here in this church family, to grow in our discipleship, but to grow in our opportunities to go from here as well and make the name of Jesus known. Uh, But for today, just these two opportunities to put before you. First one is this, the ministry fair that is happening today. And maybe you saw some of that on your way in. You're going to see it again on your way out. Our ministry leaders are gathering uh, out in the entryway, will be in a little bit, and out in the front yard as well. ready to help you get plugged in. And many of you in the room right now, you're serving across different areas of this church and we're so glad for that, so thankful that you're using the gifts and the the abilities and the resources that God has given to you. Uh, So grateful for that. But there's also a lot of you in the room right now who are not serving. And this is a really, really important part of your discipleship. And, And today's the day. Like Today's the day to get up off of the sidelines and to get into the game. And, and I imagine even right now that there's some of you maybe sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I would love to, but, but I'm just not sure I can do what everybody else is doing. Like I look at that guy and, and he's good, I, I just don't have that. And, and I'm not even sure that I have anything at all that I can contribute to what's going on here. And listen, if that's you, um, I wanna remind you that there's really only three pieces of equipment that you need to get in this game. The Spirit of God, the word of God, and the people of God. And if you are saved by the grace of God through faith in the Son of God, then you have all three of those things already. Spirit of God, the word of God, and the people of God. Listen, listen, if you're not in the game yet, this team, like this church, we need you to be in the game. Okay? We need you to be in the game. And hear me, we need you to be in the game not because of what you bring to it, We need you to be in the game, not because of your abilities, not because of your talents, not because of your accomplishments or maybe what you've done at work or your reputation or anything like that. We need you in the game, not because of any of those things, which, by the way, takes a ton of pressure off of you. We need you in the game because this is the way that God designed it. This is the way that God designed it for all of his children whom he has saved by his grace and gifted by the power of the Spirit of God to use that gift to build up the body of Christ in this place. That's when we grow. That's when we flourish. That's when we see the blessing of God, not only in being served by others, but in serving others with the gifts that God has given us as well. We need you in the game because that's the way that God has designed it. That's part of the point here, I think, of Isaiah chapter six. We're gonna be used most effectively for the Lord when we finally come to the end of ourselves and realize that we have nothing to offer apart from Christ. Like, That's Isaiah, right? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I've got nothing, God. Like it's us coming before him and saying, listen, Lord, I have nothing, but I have Christ. I have the spirit of God, I have the word of God, and I have the people of God. So here I am, Lord, send me. Just think, just think what could happen as a result of you praying that prayer this morning. Just think of the eternal seeds that could be multiplied In this moment right now as you pray, here I am, Lord, I'm yours. Everything I am, everything I have, all given to me from you anyway, but here I am, Lord, take me, use me, send me. 
That could be one very significant way for you to do what God says and to go where God sends. That's number one. Here's number two. Second way. As elders, um, we have been seeking the Lord for a long time about how our church can uh, best reach our region with the gospel of Jesus Christ within our lifetime. And I said, as I said a few minutes ago, we're trusting in the Lord to show us a variety of ways that will come together um, over the next uh, little while, coming months. And, and we'll share those things with you as those details come together in a more concrete way. And, and we're excited to share those things with you when the time is right. Um, but we've also been praying for a long time about the potential of our church planting a church in Simcoe. And so as we have been seeking the Lord for clarity and for wisdom around this, we realize that some of that clarity and some of that wisdom will come as we seek the Lord together as a church family. And so our next prayer meeting coming up Wednesday, October 16th, um, we're going to gather together and seek the Lord specifically around that. Just asking the Lord, please, like, (laughs) here we are, Lord, send us. So we're going to gather Wednesday, October 16th. Understand, please, that um, that's not just for people who live in Simcoe, okay? That prayer meeting is not just for people who live in Norfolk County or somewhere out in that area. We're all in this together. Church family together. And, and I would encourage you, I would exhort you, implore you, please make that a priority. Wednesday, October 16th, we're coming and seeking the Lord. And I want to be super clear on this, that at this point, we have no plans beyond seeking the Lord for his plans. Like, that's it. Like, we just want your plans, Lord, and we want you to lead. So that prayer meeting, Wednesday, October 16th, only a couple weeks away. Can I just add, just finally, as just a bit of a side note, the older I get, not that I'm super old, so don't get that thought in your pretty little head, okay? But the older I get, uh, the more I'm just becoming convinced more and more and more, like, it's, it's as if the Lord is just giving me new perspective on some things that... Um, the time is short, the battle is real, and the need is urgent. People need Jesus. We need Jesus. And may we be a church who is willing to humbly lay ourselves down, to lay our agendas down before the Lord and simply say, here we are, Lord, send us. Whenever, wherever, and for whatever, I will do what you say and I will go where you send because you have given me everything in Jesus. Lord, may it be so.